Welcome to You Are Not Broken, the only podcast that combines science, medicine, and psychology to re-educate your brain and help you live your best love life. And I'm your host, board-certified female urologist, Dr. Kasperson. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm so excited today to have my friend join me, Dr. Kraft, who's on the East Coast and I'm on the West Coast, and we've never met in real life, but someday when real life can happen again, we're going to meet. <laughs> it's going to be awesome. She's a, a gynecologist specializing in vulvovaginal disorders in Washington, D.C. She's prominent on Instagram at Jill Kraft, MD. It's J-I-L-L-K-R-A-P-F-M-D. And you can find her at vulvodynia.com. She's not only a physician, but then she got a master's in education, which is so clearly apparent when I look on her her education that she does on Instagram. She's active in research and has published chapters and peer-reviewed articles on vulvodynia, vulvar dermatoses, which is skin disorders of the vulva, and hypoactive sexual desire disorder. She's the associate editor for the Journal of Sexual Medicine, as well as for the textbook Female Sexual Pain Disorders, which just came out with its second edition, which is awesome. Welcome, Dr. Kraft. I'm so excited you're talking to us today. Thank you for having me. I'm glad we could finally get together. We've been talking about it for so long. I know. It's, it's awesome. So let's start at the basics. What is the vulva? So yes, <laughs> I spend a majority of my time on social media educating about the vulva. And, and that's, that's great. It's a great place to start. So the vulva is actually the least examined part of the female body. Most women do not know where the vulva is or what it does. Most doctors do not look at the vulva. Even gynecologists, and I'm a gynecologist, so I can say this, but even gynecologists who are trained in female anatomy, they often don't spend adequate time on the vulva. They basically skip over vulvar exam and go straight to the speculum to do the pap smear or to collect a vaginal swab or whatever it might be. And so... We know this because there's many vulvar skin conditions that go misdiagnosed and undiagnosed for many years. One of those is vulvar lichen sclerosis. This is a condition of the vulva that literally changes the appearance of the vulva. It literally covers the clitoris. And many times women will come in and they say, I never looked before, so I didn't know things were changing. Or they say, I've seen my doctor every year for a pap smear or what have you, an annual exam, and no one said anything. And oftentimes it's misdiagnosed as yeast because finally they'll start itching, but then people still don't pick it up and they think that it's just chronic yeast infection. So they, you know, sometimes it doesn't get diagnosed until it's so bad that the changes are just undeniable. So we know there's definitely a gap in examining the vulva. And the other thing that we oftentimes miss that kind of goes into your wheelhouse a little bit is clitoral adhesions. So scar tissue around the clitoris. I can tell you if a man had scar tissue on, his, on the end of his penis, he would be in, that, in the doctor's office immediately. I mean, you're a urologist. You probably have that experience. But with women, we just don't look. We don't know. And doctors just don't really examine or they don't know. And so clitoral adhesions or scar tissue that can cause pain is something that I think is very underdiagnosed. And we're, we're just learning that this is actually something that is seen quite often. 
Totally. And, you know, even in urology, I didn't get trained about the vulva until I started attending the Ishwish courses and really having classes on the vulva. And I see it all the time where a woman comes in and she says, well, I was told my exam is normal. And then I do the exam and I'm like, no way, Jose, is this normal, right? And it's so common that we just, doctors don't get trained in the vulva. It's so true. I, the vagina gets all the play here. The vagina is the one that gets so much attention and it's not nearly as important. And a lot of people do when they're talking about the vulva, they'll say the word vagina, but I think it's really important that we differentiate these two parts of our anatomy. If we can't talk about our anatomy, it disempowers us, right? We can't communicate with our sexual partner. We can't communicate with our medical health care provider if we can't localize exactly where our symptoms are. At least, you know, saying vagina versus vulva, I think that's very, very important. And also teaching our children what their parts are called, because that if they don't know what they're called, it leads to confusion. There's an underlying feeling of maybe this is a shameful part of my body. And so I'm a huge advocate, both as a doctor, a gynecologist, and a mom, to really call things what they are. And so, you know, the vulva is actually the main site of female pleasure as well as female pain. It's not the vagina. The vagina is just a stretchy orifice that allows for a baby to be delivered, you know? But beyond that, it's really the vulva is where it's at. The vulva has very important structures. It has the labia majora, which protect the vestibule, which is the most important part. So it's protective. The pubic hair is protective. The skin of the labia majora are protective. And then within that, you have the labia minora and you have the vestibule. And the vestibule probably gets the least amount of attention out of anything. And it's the most important. It's like the Wizard of Oz. It's like the wizard behind the, <laughs> the screen here. But it's it's the one controlling everything because it has the urethra where the urinex it's the body. It has the glands that produce the, our natural lubrication, which we know is so necessary. And it also is the insertion point on the bottom where the pelvic floor muscles insert. And that's a cause of a lot of pain conditions that we're now finding. Yeah, absolutely. I, you know, it's, it's fun to kind of turn things around because people are, you know, especially in the sex med, they'll be like, why can't a woman have an orgasm with her vagina? You know, because they still think about it in a very male centric way right? The male organ goes in the vagina. So why can't that be where the woman has the orgasm? And I'm like, how easy did you want people to make it? We put it on the outside. Exactly. You You know, like this isn't on the inside hidden, like it was still difficult to see and mirrors are very useful, but it's like, we actually put, put the important stuff on the outside. That's where the attention needs to go. I completely agree. And, and I know this, it's hard. It's, it's, it, things are changing and we're, it comes with education. And so I don't fault any patients or any women who don't really know where their vestibule is or where their vulva is, but we're getting there. And, and I think that the more we talk about it, the more we normalize these things and the more we say, okay, well, maybe it's, it might be typical, but there's things that we can do about dryness in that area. And there's things that we can do about pain in that area. We don't have to keep this hush hush or just grin and bear it. There's, you know, there's treatments available and there's diagnoses that, that we can 
identify. And so all of this is essential because a lot of women feel hopeless when they have pain or discomfort or symptoms in this area. They can't just tell everybody about it. And when they go to their doctors, their doctors aren't always receptive or they may not know about it. And so we need to change that. Yeah. And I I think going back to the physical exam and, you know, I have a lot of doctors, nurse practitioners, PAs who listen is like, we're trained to look at the owie, right? If somebody comes in and says, there's something wrong with my ear, you're going to look at the ear, right? Same with your elbow, same with your foot. But if somebody says there's an issue down there, it rarely gets an exam and it commonly just gets antibiotics thrown at it. It's very true. It's very true. And, you know, in the case of vulvar skin conditions, which I specialize in, it's a, these conditions are caught between two medical specialties, basically. You have dermatologists who train and know all about different skin conditions all over the body, but many dermatologists will not do a pelvic examination. They won't look at the vulva or the vagina. And then we have gynecologists who look at the at the pelvic organs all day, every day, but they don't have the extensive training in identifying these conditions, which are really pattern recognition. And if you're not seeing it over and over and over, it's going to be really hard to identify. And so a lot of these women that have these skin conditions, they number one, don't know who to go to. And it's often you know, difficult because if they go to a dermatologist, they may not get the care they need. If they go to a gynecologist, they may not get the care that they need. So we definitely need awareness around these conditions. Totally. I think there is a more, at least, you know, again, I'm biased because this is the world I live in, but I have more women come in and they say, Hey, I looked this up and I was reading about vulvodynia. What's vulvodynia? And so I was talking to them, you know, that it's all that is, is pain of the vulva. It doesn't actually tell you why or what to do about it. Can you talk a little bit more about just vulvodynia in general and then some of the common reasons for it? Absolutely. And a lot of people in my field don't like the term vulvodynia just for that reason, because it just tells us there's pain and where that pain is located in a very general sense, the vulva. However, I I have to say, after being on social media for a little while, we have to start somewhere. And I think it's an entry into learning more about this. And so I've kind of tried to embrace that term and then say, okay, yes, vulvodynia, but did you know there's actually causes? There have to be causes because there's causes to everything. (laughs) There has to be some sort of cause. And so when I think about vulvar pain, I think about it in two different ways. There's causes that we have the research on and that we have learned about in medical school and in health professional school. And then there's causes that don't have as much research on them. And they may not be as recognized or as easy to delineate. Okay. And so our recognized causes are things like, well, they're, they're becoming more and more, but they're things like different vulvar skin conditions that we can describe and recognize. A genitourinary syndrome of menopause has gotten a lot of consensus documents written about it and terminology and so forth. And so we're getting some more definitive information on that. And so as we learn more and more, some of these causes of vulvodynia are getting taken out of the vulvodynia black box and they're given their own diagnosis, if you will. So when we think about the black box of vulvodynia, I like to basically think of four different causes. And these are large groups here, but we generally have hormones as a potential cause or hormonally associated vulvodynia or vestibulodynia. You have muscle 
as a potential cause. You have inflammation as a potential cause. And inflammation can either be internal, meaning an autoimmune condition that's bringing forth inflammation, or it can be external, like infection. And then you have nerve-related as a potential cause. And so when we're talking about bulbodynia, like I said, Everything has causes and vulvodynia is no different. It's just about delineating the cause or causes involved in the vulvodynia. And then that is going to direct you to a treatment option, which is more likely to work. Awesome. I love it. That's super helpful. I think that clarifies that. And the other thing I think that clarifies is if at first you don't succeed, try again. Yes, absolutely. And so, you know, as a vulvodynia specialist, what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to take this broad mismatch of like vulvar pain, you know, whether it's described as itching, burning, discomfort, rawness, irritation, whatever, however anybody interprets that, I'm taking that and I'm unraveling it like a ball of yarn that has been disheveled. I have to ravel it, unravel it, and then I sort that out into what makes sense based on how our bodies work. And so in my exam, going back to the vulvar exam, I spend a lot of time on the vulvar exam because I am a specialist in this. And so what I'm looking for is where the pain is specifically located. And when I say that, I mean, you know, we know the entire vulva can be at play. But in most cases, actually a majority of cases, the pain is localized either at the entrance of the vaginal opening, so the vestibule, which is located within the labia minora and extends to the hymenal remnants or the basically the entrance to the vagina is the best layman's term that I can possibly get. When I say that, most women kind of know what I'm talking about within the labia minora. And most pain is localized to that area. And that's where women will have pain with sex. They'll have pain with insertion, insertion of a tampon, insertion of a dilator, insertion of a toy, insertion of a penis. That's where that pain will be located. And then a certain uh, subset of women will have pain of the clitoris and that's called clitorodynia. So pain of the vaginal opening we call vestibulodynia because it's pain of the vestibule, the vulvar vestibule, so part of the vulva. And then pain of the clitoris is clitorodynia because it's pain of the clitoris. And so localizing that is a big part of it. And if the pain is generalized, meaning all over the vulva or hemivulva on one side of the vulva, then that points to other things. So that's making me think more of an inflammatory process of the skin or perhaps the nerves that are coming in that area that are feeding that whole area. Whereas when we're talking about the vestibule, I'm dividing it into either nerve-related, hormone-related, inflammation, or muscular. Perfect. I love it. The area... So this is... This is like my pet project. The location on a woman's vulva between the urethra and the clitoris. It's at 12 o'clock straight up. It's like that strip of skin. We should name that. It's, it has a name. It it's has called, a name. It's called the frenulum. That's the frenulum. Okay. So yeah, it does have a name, but yeah, that's, and when we're doing the exam, we want to do the exam of everything, right? And that's generally, that area of tissue is generally part of the vestibule as well. Perfect. I see a lot of very specific pain there, usually postmenopausal, and frequently, you know, they come to see me because they're refractory to estrogen. Mm-hmm. Do you see like localized pain, generally urinary symptoms of menopause in the frenulum? 
not exclusively. You know, when you start, when you start touching with the Q-tip, so what we do for this is something called a Q-tip test or cotton swab test. That's where we touch in different areas. And oftentimes when it's hormone related, they'll have the most pain at the gland ostea or the opening of the glands that produce our natural lubrication, which are generally on each side of the urethra, as well as down at the bottom on each side. So if we're looking at the vestibule like a clock, we're talking about two and 10 o'clock on the top, and we're talking about five and seven o'clock on the bottom. And generally that's where the gland openings are. And that's where I see most of the discomfort. I'll also see uh, redness when there's a lack of hormone. However, the other areas, including that area that we were talking about can be pale. You can see just different subtleties in the tissue that make you think that there's a lack of hormone. So in my, I have a couple of recent women, so I'm like, I got to figure out how to to fix them because it's tricky. It's pale, it's thinned. Do you think they're just suboptimally using the estrogen? Well, we now know, um, and there's more research coming out on this, that that area, the vestibule, because of where it's derived embryologically, meaning when we're forming as fetuses, where these tissues come from, we know that that area is very androgen dependent, meaning it's very reliant on testosterone and other androgens. And so estrogen helps, sure, but we see more improvement in that tissue and in the gland function when we add some testosterone to that mix. Perfect. That's what I've been doing. Okay. I'm on the right track. (laughs) See, even experts need to learn more from experts. This is so good. Let's step back for a second. What prompted you to go to social media with your message? Because like you said, you're pretty new to it, but you already have a pretty big following. So this is important work you're doing. Well, I think it just shows you that the need is there. And that's what I recognized. So I was in academics for about eight years. After residency, I did a a medical education fellowship. I thought that my career direction was going to be a program director or a clerkship director or, you know, something in that academic vein. However, as I was practicing, I spent a lot of time learning about vulvar pain conditions. And I was just really just surprised that I had never learned about it in residency. And in practice on my own, I was seeing a lot of women that had pain in this area, pain with sex, vulvar symptoms, chronic vaginitis, and so forth. And I just didn't feel adequately trained to treat them. And so I started reading a lot about it. I started spending time with experts in the field. I was very lucky. I was in Washington, D.C. And so I was able to spend time with two of the major experts, one of them expert in menopause, Dr. Simon, and then another one, an expert in vulvodynia and lichen sclerosis, Dr. Andrew Goldstein. And so I spent as much time as I could with them to learn how to treat these women. And then I would teach residents and medical students and other faculty members when I was in academic academic jobs. I helped the residents. I, was, I had a pain clinic that I started at one of the institutions and I was trying to do this, you know, dedicate time to do this. 
but it's tough when you're in academics. It's tough to start social media accounts and express your own views and things like that. I always felt a little bit uncomfortable branching out in that way. And I was also delivering babies at the time and very busy. And I'm a military spouse and my husband has been deployed multiple times. I have three kids and everything. So finally, we decided to make the move back to the Washington, D.C. area, which is pretty much where we're from. And I joined my mentor, Dr. Andrew Goldstein at the Center for Vulva Vaginal Disorders, the CVVD in Washington, D.C. And I decided I was going to make a career change and focus on vulvodynia and lichen sclerosis, vulvar pain conditions full time. And when I decided to make that change, it has always been a dream of mine to really go into patient education. So I had spent many years, my entire career, teaching medical students, teaching residents, and I really wanted to teach patients. And where are the patients? How can I find them? Well, guess what? The patients are on social media. So I had to go where the patients are. And then I decided, okay, I think I want to try Instagram. And it wasn't something that I was really familiar with at all. The thing that I liked about Instagram is that it's very visual and I'm a very visual person. And a lot of the ways that I think through vulvar pain conditions is in a very visual way. I like flow charts. I like graphics. I like to demonstrate that to my students and my patients. And so I thought that that would be a good avenue to go to. And so I really, I was literally, when I started my account, I was Googling like how to post, like how I did, I was like, what is a story? I don't understand. Like I literally Googled everything because the only experience I had with Instagram was probably posting like five pictures of my kids on like a personal account. And that was it. And so Yes, I started experimenting with it. I started following people that that were, you know, better at it than I was to try to learn from them. I decided what I liked and what I didn't like. And I decided early on that I really wanted to dedicate my page to advocacy, to support, to promoting research and to education involve our pain conditions. And so that's kind of my story there. <laughs> I love it. What are what are some of the myths that you you see on social media? Either the questions that people ask you or what you see other people post myths about the vulva, you know, the pelvis and women's sex in general. Do you kind of see some repetitive myths that you're working on myth busting? Absolutely. I mean, I I have to say that my followers and my community, like they're very the patients that I see and the people that that interact on my page are very educated about vulvar pain conditions. And they unfortunately have to be because the medical community is not. So it's kind of sad, but it's also kind of good that they have taken a patient advocacy role. When I'm providing education, I always have to think about different layers. You know, I want to appeal to the person who may be a medical professional or a patient advocate that knows a lot about this, but I also want to appeal to the person that's like, what's a vulva? Where is it? I have no idea what you're talking about. And so it's a fine balance of that. I would say the biggest myth that I see is that you have to extensively clean the vagina. That I think is a myth that can be a little bit harmful. Another one that I see is that sex should be uncomfortable, that that's expected. I find that that's a very unfortunate myth. And I think you know, you try to debunk these things. And then the other myth I see is there's a lot of myths around vulvar skin conditions, especially lichen sclerosis. 
I see a lot of myths around the use of the main treatment, which is topical corticosteroids. There's many myths about the danger in using those, how long you should use them, about other potential uh, things that people have tried for treatment that can actually be really dangerous. And so these are the types of things I see. I think, yeah, the education in, in number one, what's normal and then how to care for it, right? Yeah. Super important. I get the sense that there's a lot, there's a lot of myths on TikTok. I haven't explored that as much for different reasons. And we'll see in the future what happens. But I, I get the sense that there's a lot of there's a lot of myths going around there. My TikTok people that are really good at that, um, they're 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 dispelling myths left and right about cleaning and about odor and all kinds of things. <laughs> Totally. I I recently saw a young woman, she'd had vaginal discharge for five years and wasn't bothering her, usually not itchy, a little more active after she'd been working out. She was told by her friends that it wasn't normal. Then she went to a guy and a guy nurse practitioner had an extensive workup, vaginal ultrasounds, swabs. So they ruled out infection. They ruled out tumor, all that stuff. And I kind of got to the conclusion. I'm like, has anybody told you that this just might be what your body does and this is normal? It's been going on for four or five years since you had your period. So can you talk about just kind of what's normal down there? Absolutely. And I do see this every every now and then. I think that it's important for people with uteruses and vaginas and vulvas to know that there there is discharge. This is normal. This is a part of your vagina's way of self-cleaning and your cervix's way of self-cleaning as well as the vulva. And so the discharge that occurs changes during the course of the menstrual cycle based on different hormones that causes different colors or textures of the discharge. Everyone's a little bit different as far as volume goes with discharge. I mean, think about it. Everyone produces different levels of saliva or some people tear more than others and some people have more dry eyes. Some people are more sweaty. Yeah, some people are sweatier than others. And so, you know, there's definitely a hormonal component. There's probably a genetic component. And it's just the way that we're made. Now, if the discharge is causing irritation, burning, if it has an odor to it, if it looks inflammatory, meaning it looks more like pus, or it's, if you're concerned about it, I think it's always good to go to a doctor or a healthcare provider to get things checked out and for education and so forth. But, you know, it's also important to know that some of this is just what our body is supposed to do. And I do find that there, you know, you can definitely, when you don't know why something is happening with your body and you find it bothersome, then it's natural to basically have a little bit of anxiety about that. And then you start thinking about it more and more. And so I do see that, especially in in women who have a baseline of generalized anxiety. There can be a focus on things that kind of snowballs a little bit. But I think that the more that we reassure that, yes, you should have discharge. You shouldn't be completely dry down there. Actually, if you're completely dry down there, then you have a different problem and that may need addressed also. Totally. Yeah. And I think another thing, because in our society, it's very common to either wax or shave the hair off completely, that you are going to see more discharge because it's not getting trapped in the natural hair down there. And I think Dr. Gunter talked about that in her book, The Vagina Bible. 
Yes. I think that's an important thing because, you know, with different, with different trends and with how we talk about these things and talking about these things more out in the open, as well as different beauty trends, we're going to see differences and maybe it was never a difference, but we're just more aware of it. And so that's why it's so important to discuss it. So, you know, when things are functioning the way they should, or when you may want to see a healthcare provider to figure out what may be going on. Perfect. And I think the other important thing about that is it's not supposed to smell like roses. No. And that a lot of that is the influence of marketing, right? Um, we get these messages that this area is supposed to smell like roses and cupcakes and unicorns and glitter, you know, and, and it's, it's really not. And so we need to also normalize that, you know, and there's changes in odor that are normal during the course of the month based on different hormones and different factors. And so women can get mixed messages when it comes to these things. Okay. So a little bit of discharge is normal, but a lot of discharge is not normal or a little bit of odor is okay, but what should I be looking out for? And some of these things are, it's hard. It's hard to educate on this because you don't want someone just saying, oh, it's normal and suffering. But at the same time, you don't want someone to think that there's something wrong with them when it's just the way that their body's working. Yeah, I agree. And it's nuanced. And I never want anybody to think like, oh, I didn't seek care because I thought it was normal, but more like be curious, kind of understand what your body's doing and then, you know, learn that, okay, if, if I'm worried enough or something's causing pain or harm, go see somebody, get it checked yes. out. Yes. I think for my patients and for the people that I reach out to on social media, I think the main message is know the why behind things. So once you know the why behind things, whether they're going right or whether they're going wrong with your body, it takes the fear out of it somewhat. And it's that fear and that anxiety component that really amps things up, especially for people with chronic pain. There's usually an anxiety component that is a pain-related anxiety. It may, it's, not, it's different than generalized anxiety. It's really driven by fear of the symptoms that you're having. And I say pain, but it could be other symptoms because I have women that have vaginitis that have a you know, a, a symptom related anxiety concerning their vaginitis. And I don't discount that. Anybody that has something go, that they feel that's going wrong and no one can figure out what's going on. I mean, that's scary. And so what I try to do is I try to normalize it in a sense of this is how the body works. And this is when things are not going quite right. This is what can happen, but we have an explanation for it. And that's one of the reasons that with vulvodynia or the term vulvodynia, I want to try to take the fear out of it. Because when you look up the definition, the definition is literally pain of unknown cause. Well, that's scary. That's really scary. And that sets us up for throwing treatment options like blindly darts at a dartboard. But everything has causes, everything has reasons, everything has a why behind it. And when we start to uncover that, it takes the fear away. Love it. I love it. I love it. Talking about, you know, the over-the-counter yeast medications or how women will just take the over-the-counter yeast. Maybe they've never even been diagnosed with recurrent yeast, but kind of saying, hey, I have recurrent yeast or I have recurrent bacterial vaginosis. Do you have tips for those women? I think this is a tough one. We know the literature tells us that most women will take 
an over-the-counter yeast medication when they have any symptoms, whether, you know, and it's, it's unsure whether it's actually yeast as the cause of the symptom or even an inflammatory cause in general. It could be a muscular cause or, or a hormonal cause, but generally people will want something that's easily accessible. And that's what those medications are. Same with, you know, when you look up your symptoms online, you know, when you go to, when you Google symptoms or you go to a support group online, it's accessibility and comfort, right? You can do it anonymously. And so I I understand why women do this and I totally get it. But it can I would say if things do not get better after trying a first line treatment, or if you've been if you have these symptoms for greater than three months, then this is where you would want to seek a higher level of care and just really try to figure out what's going on. And same thing, you know, if you're having symptoms or pain for greater than three months or for a prolonged time period, and you see you're seeing your healthcare provider and you're not really getting answers or you're not really getting any treatments that are working, then it's time to see a specialist. It's time to see somebody who does this day in and day out, who's seen everything who's up on the latest literature on this that can really identify a diagnosis for you and can and then can target treatment based on that diagnosis you know i think that we're going to see i'm hoping in the future that sexual medicine and vulvar specialists or vulvar pain specialists are actually going to be a recognized group. Like for example, if a woman has trouble getting pregnant, she goes to her gynecologist and her gynecologist starts some first step treatments for her. But if those do not work, then she goes to a reproductive and endocrinology and infertility doctor. She goes to an infertility doctor who specializes in this as the next step because that person is the specialist. And I don't think that women with vulvar pain should be treated differently than that. I think if first step treatments aren't working, then it's important to see a specialist. Love it. Love it. Let's talk about the the kind of classic scenario of UTI after sex. I know it's not always a bacterial UTI, but it might be a a pain that's not present during intercourse. They say sex is fine, but then a day later, it starts burning either with peeing or their pelvis is achy. Can you talk about pain after sex and kind of what, what that might be about? Absolutely. So we oftentimes blame things on infection that may not be. And we see this as far as urinary tract infections go. We see this as far as vaginitis goes, yeast infections, and so forth. Oftentimes when women have a burning discomfort or a burning or aching pain that is after intercourse, it's more oftentimes than not related to the pelvic floor muscles. And I see this every day. I see this all of the time. And when the pelvic floor muscles are tight or tense, remember the pelvic floor muscles, they wrap around the bladder in the front, they wrap around the vaginal opening, and they also wrap around where the stool comes out. And and then they go to your, your coccyx and your lower back. And so it's not uncommon. In fact, it's very common to see constipation, to see urinary frequency, incomplete emptying, feelings of discomfort with these systems, as well as 
burning or pain at the vaginal opening or burning, aching after intercourse. When someone has a tight pelvic floor muscles, we call this hypertonic or high tone, or sometimes we call it overactive pelvic floor muscle dysfunction. Awesome. Do you have tips for these women? What should they do? Yes. So the first step is diagnosis to figure out what is going on and to make sure that is indeed what is going on. Also, we see hypertonic pelvic floor muscle dysfunction alone sometimes, but oftentimes it can be associated with other conditions. For example, women can have pain due to hormonal reasons, and then they also have tightening of the pelvic floor in response or in conjunction with their pelvic pain or their pain with sacs. We often see women who have skin conditions on the outside and then develop tight pelvic floor muscles in conjunction for the same reasons. And so sometimes women will seek treatment for pelvic floor or they'll be diagnosed for pelvic floor and they'll seek treatment, but they won't get completely better, which totally is it's awful because then they feel like, oh no, there's nothing left to do. And then I have vulvodynia. It's completely unidentified what I have when maybe there was a hormonal component or maybe there was an inflammatory or a nerve component in conjunction and just not everything was treated. And so uh, diagnosis is the first step. You can seek out a pelvic floor physical therapist. Pelvic floor physical therapy is first line treatment for this condition. And so pelvic floor physical therapists are wonderful. I work hand in hand with them. They are part of my treatment team. That's a great part of this. Always making sure that you're well lubricated. So lubricant, there's a lot of lubricants now as well as suppositories that have CBD in them. Just hemp derived CBD. There's no effects like THC like effects with this, but we know that there's cannabinoid receptors in the pelvic floor muscles. There's also an anxiety component with tight pelvic floor muscles where it adds fuel to the fire. And so there's many different treatment options for this. I love it. Do you recommend on the CBD, is it a sexual lubricant or is it just treatment of the vulva not related to the actual event of, of intimacy? They make both. So there's water-based lubricants that have uh, CBD in them, which can be helpful to release the pelvic floor a bit while also providing the benefits of a water-based lubricant. And then there's also suppositories that are usually compounded in cocoa butter. So they're very well tolerated. And that would be more of a maintenance treatment. That would be something that wouldn't be necessarily inserted in preparation for intercourse or anything like that. It would be something that you would would insert either vaginally or rectally at bedtime, and it would keep that pelvic floor in a more released state. So you could do pelvic floor stretches and pelvic floor exercises to make sex more comfortable when sex occurs. Cool. You're giving me new ideas. I hadn't heard about that. Are people researching that more now that, because that that CBD stuff, it's legal because it's not active ingredient marijuana, right? So are we able to do more research on it? It is. Yes. So, so that's a great question. We're actually doing a research project on exactly this. So there's, there's very little research on vulvodynia and CBD products. We know that they're used, they are used for pelvic pain. They're used for vulvar pain, but we have, we, we really don't have much research on it. And so we are actually in the process of getting a study approved. That's going to be a placebo controlled randomized trial on this, which is the best kind of study that you can do. And I'm hoping that, you know, 
Once we have results, you know, I'll definitely share those. But this research is necessary. We need to know if these treatment options work. We need to know if they're safe and we need to have options for women that have these conditions. Awesome. I love it. Thank you for doing the research. That's the hardest part of all of us. <laughs> and, and it is. I'll be the disseminator. <laughs> it's one of researcher. the most enjoyable parts for me too. So in addition to seeing patients and in addition to writing and editing and teaching, I am also very active in research because I I think that if we don't do research on this, the field is not going to advance. We need the research to answer the questions that we have to make sure that the treatments that we think should work based on how the body works actually work. And so (laughs) that's what I'm working on. And I find that patients with vulvar pain are incredibly incredibly generous with volunteering for research. They know that there's nothing on this. They want to help. And I'm just so grateful to all of the research participants that really, they're the ones that really push us forward in understanding this and they help future generations. So they're just amazing. I love it. I love it. Tell us quickly what it's like to write a book. You helped with the second edition of the textbook that came out. Who's your target audience for that? And what was it like to write a book? So I was, I'm an associate editor on the book. I had amazing mentors. And so basically we, we had many different authors of different chapters. And so we have the experts in each topic write a chapter on their topic. And then my job was to, um, to generally organize that as well as to review all of those chapters. And so it was an incredible amount of work, but it was extraordinary. I am just, I feel so thankful to be a part of it and to be able to put out something that we are all so proud of. This textbook is the second edition, one of the major textbooks, if not the major textbook for this field. And it's just, uh, yeah, it's just an incredible experience. This textbook is really directed towards medical professionals. And patients, of course, can look through it, but it's really talking about the research and analyzing the research behind things. There is a, a, a book for the general public that Dr. Goldstein has called When Sex Hurts. And this book was written a number of years ago, about 10 years ago, I believe. And so we are actually, we just found out we were working on the second edition or an updated version of that book also. And I am one of the authors for that. Awesome. So I am incredibly excited about this. I'm even more excited about this because this reaches the general population, right? And so it's a way to really break down all of this high-level literature and knowledge that we are really gaining on all of this, break it down to a level where everybody can understand and it's accessible. It's all about accessibility. I love it. Do you have any idea on timeline of when the, the new edition of When Sex Hurts? It's going to be next year. Awesome. 2022. Oh, that's fantastic. I just had a woman that I was seeing, she followed up with me this week and she, we, we zoom now we, te- you know, telemed, she like lifted it up and she's like, I've read this since I saw you last. It's amazing. So it's a oh, really, really great. good resource. I have to get, I'll have to get the new second edition. I have the first one and it was on my desk like years ago. Right. And my partner came in and he's like, oh yeah, that's, that's our college buddy. <laughs> I'm, like, yes. I'm like, you know, Dr. Andrew Goldstein. He's like, oh yeah, we vacation together all the time. And I'm like, you know, he's kind of like a big deal, right? And they're like, yeah, 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 whatever. We do it in college. And I'm like, like, you want to have him sign my book? 
(laughs) (laughs) Yes, you can dedicate the book to you. I actually thought of having him do that. I was like, would that be awkward? Um, But I see him all the time because we work together. So I feel so lucky. But yes, that book is excellent. And 80, over 80% of that content is new, which just goes to show the amount of research that has happened in the past 10 years has been absolutely incredible in the area of, of vulvar pain conditions for women. And Thank so, goodness. yes. So this book, if you're, if you're considering getting an updated version, I would definitely do it because this book is an, essentially a new book, which it's very... I'm, I'm glad it's out. It's it's a great resource. And so um, the more that we can do that, the better. We also have, there's a pain course that we are trying to put on. It was supposed to be last spring, but then, you know, COVID hit and everything got a little bit crazy. And so we're trying to decide whether to do it virtually or whether to wait it out to do it in person, because a lot of these things, it's really important to do it in person to show how to do injections and how how to examine the pelvic floor and all of these really necessary things. And so that's on hold right now, but these are exciting things to come. And that's through Ishwish. Very, very cool. Can you tell us one more time where people can find you? Absolutely. So I am on Instagram at JillCraftMD. That's J-I-L-L-K-R-A-P-F-M-D. I can also be found my practice website, the Center for Vulva Vaginal Disorders, www.vulvodynia.com. We can also be found at www.cvvd.org. Either way, we have a lot of great information on our website. So under conditions we treat, we have a little blurb about every condition that we take care of. We also have full texts of all the articles that we have been involved in and and have published. So if you ever have trouble getting the research on something, check our website because we have all of those articles. There's also a webinar on lichen sclerosis that we're currently redoing, but it's a ton of information on lichen sclerosis. And so there's a lot of information on the website also. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for coming. And 2022, when the book for the average person comes out, will you come on my podcast again? I will for sure come on your podcast. I would love to. Awesome. Thank you so much. Thank you.